From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm your host, Francis Rose. Public health conditions in individual states will dictate when federal employees can go back to work, according to new guidance. The Office of Management and Budget and Office of Personnel Management say agencies should continue maximum telework for high-risk employees. Federal Times reports the guidance says agencies should also consider the state of daycare, public transportation, and parking. A new stop movement order from the Defense Department doesn't include restrictions on travel for recruiting or overseas deployments. Defense Secretary Mark Esper says military departments should notify him before suspending recruiting. Federal News Network reports the orders extend most of the Pentagon's travel restrictions through the end of June. The Navy should cut two aircraft carriers from the fleet, according to a new assessment from the Defense Department. The assessment from the Office of the Secretary of Defense says the Navy should add dozens of unmanned or lightly manned ships and put a pause on the large surface combatant destroyers and cruisers. Defense News reports the Navy officially says the assessment is, quote, pre-decisional. The Defense Department now has up to four months to review the Joint Enterprise Defense Infrastructure contract and make fixes. But after nearly three years of twists and turns in the contract, more voices are calling for the department to start over. Jason Miller is executive editor of Federal News Network and writing about it inside the reporter's notebook. Jason, it's great to see you. And first of all, I want to start off by being full transparency with the audience. You and I have known each other for a long time. We're friends off the air, and you have been covering this issue as well as or better than anybody on this scene. Why is it that it's time, in your view, for the department to think twice about whether it should even continue with the JEDI contract? I think there's a couple of reasons why this contract has really run its course or this program has run its course. It's barely a contract yet. In, in many ways, JEDI started in 2017 with the draft RFP. If you go even further back, it, dra it probably started drafting requirements in 2016 or even 2015. And in my view, time has come, things have changed, the, the cloud computing environment, and every vendor will tell you, every person who deals with cloud will tell you, not just vendors, but also the agencies will tell you, Things are much different today than they were in 2015, 2016, and even 2017. And for DOD to continue down a path of saying, hey, let's have a, let's go forward with a procurement that is now pushing three years old. It, you have to, maybe it's time to take a step back and say, is this really meeting our needs today? Or can we meet our needs similarly, similarly but different because there are so many more options out there. And those options are what I want to talk about because the headline of your piece on the Federal News Network website is time for DOD to cancel JEDI, ride the CIA's cloud coattails. What's out there, In a, you, you cite the CIA and a couple other examples, what else is out there that the Pentagon could use in lieu of the JEDI deal? I think the CIA is a great example. They were the first movers. They put the C2S contract to Amazon Web Services back in 2013. Again, they were writing those requirements 2012, 2011. So they've been going forward with the C2S. Now they're moving to C2E. And C2E, as we've reported and many others have as well, is fo really focused on a couple things, multiple cloud, multiple vendor. And for me, and this is just my own personal opinion here, is that from what I hear from everyone we're talking to, to in, the, in, the, in the cloud world, that's that's the future. Everyone's going multiple cloud, multiple vendor approach. 
So beyond C2E, and, and some people have told me through whether it's Twitter or, or LinkedIn or email or whatever, they've said maybe they, it's not so easy to ride the CIA's coattails, but there's also the Air Force. Air Force has Platform One and Cloud One. Uh, I've just talked to Bill Marion, the outgoing CIO at Air Force, and that is moving along at a fast pace, seems to be meeting a lot of their needs. The Army too, and DISA too, they, they have cloud options that the broader DOD could ride those coattails as well. So I think it's just a matter of, of, of not necessarily giving up, but DOD can still meet its goals of the what they originally put out as Jedi, which is you know a purpose-built and general-built cloud, and do it just in different ways that can get them to the finish line much faster. And in the end, that's what it's about, getting to the finish line, not whether it's Jedi or another cloud concept. The striking piece of this, I think the most significant thing that I have learned about the Jedi contract over the almost three years that has been happening, Jason, is about a year and a half ago, maybe a little longer now, I talked to an outgoing, very high-level official at DISA who told me OSD never contacted DISA to learn about setting the original requirements for Jedi, which struck me as a tremendous disconnect. Is that maybe a possible reason how we got to where we are today? I think in many ways, DISA has been leading the way, but it, there's always that miscommunication that kind of happens within the government. So whether or not they talk to them or not, it's, it's uh, again, you heard it closer to the, to the uh, for, well, for lack of a better word, horse's mouth than yeah. I have. But I, I think that there are options for DOD that DISA has, but also options in some of the other uh, services. In, in light of the fact that it may be time, in your view, for the department to just move on, is there anything that they can do during this 120-day period, this review period, to fix this in such a way that they come out with a product that's going to help them in 2020 and beyond, as opposed to patching up something that was written to 2017 expectations and requirements? I would find it very difficult to see them fixing the current Jedi approach that in, in this short period of time. I mean, really what the court said was, okay, we're gonna see what changes you wanna make and then we'll, we'll get a better idea of whether or not that's gonna fix the problems. They're not saying we're gonna step, step back and fix the entire contract. I think the contract as written with a single cloud to start off with, and let's be clear, DOD has said many times, we're not gonna stick with one cloud, we will have multiple clouds. But the point is, is the first mover stat, status is what's really worrying so much of the other vendors and that's why Amazon Oracle, IBM, and others have really been pushing DOD on this. I, I, again, this is why I'll go back to Francis. If they maybe the best path forward is canceling the contract, paying IBM, <laughs> Oracle, uh, Amazon, you know, Microsoft to, hey, here's your cost. Sorry, we realize that that things have changed, and here's what we're going to do next, and come up with a, a strategy that more. Uh, closely aligns with the DOD cloud strategy that many people pointed out that Jedi and the DOD cloud strategy don't mesh well. So I, I think it's just a, a, a pragmatic, logical step is to say, does this really meet DOD, DOD's needs going forward? And, and the question for, I think a lot of people say is no, it doesn't. Jason Miller, it's great insight and it's great to have you on to talk about it. Thank you very much. My pleasure. Up next, the coronavirus's impact on future defense spending. Straight ahead on Government Matters, how a tighter budget could change defense priorities. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News.
Welcome back. The federal government has spent about two and a quarter trillion dollars all in on coronavirus response so far. Defense leaders have been forecasting smaller budgets for a couple of years now, and the virus may drive the numbers down faster. Dov Zakheim is senior advisor at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, former Undersecretary of Defense Comptroller, and writing about this in the Hill newspaper. Dov, thanks very much for coming on. What are you seeing in the coronavirus response that's prompting you to think that the defense budgets could be shaped dramatically differently moving forward? Well, first of all, thank you for having me. It's always good to see you. Um, basically, you know, there's another half trillion that's just been approved. And so we're talking about a total national debt of about 24 and a half to 25 trillion, which is about 115 to 120% more than our gross domestic product. We're paying interest on all that debt. Now, right now, interest on the debt is roughly about 55% of the uh, value of the defense budget. But that's because interest rates are really, really low. I mean, we're talking le significantly less than 1%. 10-year rates are about uh, a half percent, slightly higher than that. Uh, the shorter-term rates are even lower than that, less than a quarter percent. What happens when the rates start to go up? And even if they stay the way they are, given that we keep on borrowing and borrowing, something's going to have to give. And so there's probably going to be pressure on the defense budget, which in any event has already been sort of under some pressure. And then the question is whether there not only would be no real growth, but even no nominal growth. I mean, we may be talking about significant pressure unlike anything we've seen for some time. You write in this piece, the last time the department fundamentally shifted its focus was in the early 1990s. What happened then and what parallels do you see to what could what either is happening now or could potentially happen in the next year, two years, five years? Well, there aren't parallels in the sense of what's driving it, because in those days, this was right after the Cold War ended. Uh, President George H.W. Bush, Colin Powell and Dick Cheney, who was Secretary of Defense at the time, all felt that there could be a fundamental restructuring of our defense posture. And so they cut force levels significantly. They cut spending significantly. Um, many people felt that uh, what happened in the 90s was an overcut, too much being cut. Uh, but that was the logic behind it. Here we're talking about a totally different situation. I mean, this is being driven by a coronavirus. Now, right now we see a half a trillion dollars more, but they're talking about another trillion that might be voted. And that all presupposes that it all comes to an end, this spending spree, uh, by the summer. Well, what happens if the coronavirus comes back in the fall, which they're now saying? More money being spent, more pressure on defense on defense spending simply because we're going to be running up these huge deficits and paying interest on them. And even if the interest is low, as long as it's not negative, we're paying money. As far as the cuts go, you write in this piece, Dov, forced levels are a likely target for reductions. The only other candidates for cuts are research and development and the procurement accounts. The procurement accounts always get people hair on the backs of their necks to stand up because what if it's their program, whatever their program may be? What are the procurement accounts that you think are most likely to be the first with eyeballs on them? Well, uh, you know, you can take your choice, really, because it depends on what people oppose the most and who's got the most political clout. Uh, we know that the uh, strategic 
forces are meant, strategic nuclear forces are meant to undergo modernization that cost as much as $200 billion. There have been years and years of uh, analyses by critics in particular, obviously, who felt that we don't really need a triad. Some said we should cut the land-based missiles. Some people have said we should cut the manned bombers. Nobody seems to talk about cutting the submarines, by the way, which is kind of interesting, uh, other than dollar reasons, but not strategic reasons, if you see what I mean. Um, so that's a major target. When you're talking $200 billion program over 10 years or so, um, that's a huge target. Uh, then there's the conventional forces. Um, force levels are always a target. And um, the Army uh, is uh, uh, clearly a target for a couple of reasons. First, because they have a lot of people, and those people cost a lot of money. Uh, Army is people intensive. Um, we're not going to cut benefits, not if we want to keep the best people coming to our, to our, into our military. We have lots and lots of benefits, and Congress keeps adding to them. But if we want to recruit, um, we're going to have to keep paying those. So it means cutting people. The Army uh, is trying to come up with a, a program, actually a force structure, that allows it to fight in the Pacific as well as in Europe. And the focus, of course, right now is very much on the Pacific and on Chinese predations. But a lot of people are going to question, what can the Army really do in the Pacific? Maybe fighting in Korea. It's another thing fighting the Chinese. So that's going to be a target as well. And then you've got the F-35, a very, very expensive uh, fighter. Um, there will be people going after that. And on the uh, naval side, of course, there have been people going after carriers for the last 50 years. They haven't succeeded, uh, but the Ford uh, program has had its troubles. It's really had its teething issues. And even the President of the United States talked about that. So it reached his level and got his attention, and therefore the critics may go after that. It may be some combination of those. The real issue, if I may, is not so much which program is cut, but how the cuts are undertaken. We normally go after, uh, in what are called cut drills, lower priority programs that the military cares less about. Doesn't mean that it shouldn't be uh, lower priority. They may be very high priority, but they're lower priority to the military. They tend also to be cuts that are implemented very, very quickly with less analysis and less review than they should get. That's the biggest issue in my mind. If we're going to have to face up to the reality of, of budget pressures, we need to do this carefully with forethought and with good analysis. Dove Zakheim writing in the Hill newspaper. Thanks very much for coming on to talk about your work. I appreciate it. Thank you very much for having me. Up next, Space Force's next steps, the people and the money start flowing in. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, you can find it on our website, govmatters.tv. We'll be right back. Welcome back. A new class of graduates from the Air Force Academy will report directly to the Space Force. The 86 graduates make up the first wave of personnel that will staff the newest branch of the military since it started last year. Caitlin Johnson is Associate Director of the Aerospace Security Project at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Caitlin, welcome back. It's nice to see you. How does this fit into Thank the you. overall structure of the way that we're seeing the Space Force evolve, in your view? Sure. So these are kind of the first uh, big group of people before these Air Force 
graduates commissioned into the Space Force, we had two people in the Space Force, uh, General Raymond, who is the Chief Space Operations, and Chief Master Sergeant Trauberman, who is the most senior enlisted personnel. So now we're really seeing the Space Force uh, starting to take shape. And I think these new leaders, these um, young men and women, will have a big role to play in the new service. What, where is the Space Force now on its, on its evolution? What are the things, that, the marks that we expect to see in the coming months? And is the response to COVID or the situation that the, the Air Force is in with COVID impacting the way the Space Force is expected to grow? I mean, I think the pandemic is affecting everybody. However, we have heard from General Raymond that um, the Space Force is planning to proceed as planned. Um, right now, they're focusing on a lot of hiring. And so actually, um, on May 1st, applications will open for about 30 days for military personnel to apply to be in the Space Force. Now, they have to get approval from their service as well as the Space Force before being accepted. Um, but we should see about 16,000 people now entering the service and really starting to build up the service. I'm not sure they will do all 16,000 at once. That seems like a lot of applications. Uh, but they're starting to slowly grow the service and find uh, places. And civilian applications uh, were open for about 53 jobs um, over the last month or so. And they said they received over 8,000 applications for those 53 jobs. So it seems like there's a lot of interest, at least on the civilian side, to join the Space Force. And we'll see if uh, that translates over to the military side as well. What are we learning about acquisitions regarding Space Force? There are, I see bits and pieces. I don't see it collected together too well to understand what the force is thinking about regarding acquisitions, Caitlin. Yeah, so the acquisition situation is still a little uh, bifurcated. There are several acquisition organizations within DOD that run space programs. Um, the intention of the Space Force and of the Congress when they passed uh, the bill to make the Space Force become law was for these acquisition programs to slowly come under the Space Force. So we'll probably see that happen um, in 2021 or 2022. Um, and that includes an, an overall acquisition kind of puppet master who will coordinate all of the different programs going on, make sure there's not you know, um, unintentional overlap and that the systems really work well together across not just the Space Force, but all the other services that they support. This build out of Space Force, Caitlin, seems to be coming at an opportune time because one of the arguments in favor of it all along was, well, our, our peers in the great power competition are working in space on an ongoing basis. And we saw that just last week with the test that Russia made. What do we know about that test? And what is Space Force's role as it exists today in explaining exactly what we saw and why it's of concern to the United States. Sure, so the Russian test was actually nothing new. Uh, Russia has tested this similar or exact same system several times since 2014. They did not actually intercept anything on orbit. It was more just like launching a missile with, with no target um, in space, but it did have the capability to target something if, if it, uh, had the intent, if Russia had the intention to. So there's no doubt that they have this capability. They're obviously practicing with it. They're using it um, maybe for some signaling as well. Um, we saw India last year test an, a direct ascent ASAT weapon as well. 
Um, theirs actually intercepted a satellite. But you're right, there, um, there are a lot more rumblings of different counter space capabilities being used, being tested and being developed by our competitors or our, our near peer adversary nations. Um, and the Space Force and Space Command have the responsibility now to uh, protect US space systems and to be able to defend our systems and our space capabilities um, if there was ever a conflict. We have a little bit more than a minute left, Caitlin. What are you following as this moves forward, either the evolution of the Space Force specifically or space as a domain more broadly? Uh, to tie those together, I think what I'm really interested in is how Space Force is going to, and the Space Command, are going to create new policies and new doctrine um, or communicate those to the public on how they are protecting our space assets um, and and those really important communication lines, GPS, all of these things that we use um, on a daily basis for both civilian and our military because the um, Aerospace Security Project, we write a report every year on different counter space weapons that are being developed uh, across the, the world. And we have seen an increase in the last three years that we've been doing this report, both an increase in development an increase in interest by different countries and other actors, um, and an increase in testing and, and use, both in conflict areas and in, in times of peace. Caitlin Johnson, thanks very much. It's great to have you back. Thanks. I'm Sharice Hanner. You can now keep your finger to the pulse of all things that matter to the business of government anytime, anywhere. Subscribe to the Government Matters Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, SoundCloud, TuneIn, or simply ask your digital assistant to play the Government Matters podcast. For a quick fix of government news, follow us at Twitter at GovMattersTV. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 1030 on ABC7 to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Sharice Hanner and Ashley Gallagher. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Andrew Wagner. Government Matters was created by George Jackson. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more, including our first feature-length documentary, The Dawn of Generation AI. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.